Hello and welcome to another NBA Draft edition of the Ringer NBA Show. My name is Danny Chow. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me is Ringer NBA writer Jonathan Charks. Jonathan, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing? Pretty good. In this episode, we'll be looking at some prospects who we believe to be underrated uh, or at least under the radar relative to where they've been slotted in, you know, the mock drafts that we've been seeing thus far. Our first group of guys have all had their perception affected one way or another uh, by their recruiting ranking out of high school. These rankings are obviously an imperfect science, but they can you know, mislead as much as they can clarify. Um, the first guy on our list is Steven Zimmerman, a seven-foot freshman out of UNLV. And he's a guy I really like. He's a, a top 10 recruit out of 2015. I was able to watch him at the Adidas Nations where he looked like one of the best players in the tournament. And this was a tournament that included guys like Julio Okafor, Miles Turner, Stanley Johnson, and Justice Winslow. What do you see in Zimmerman that you know fans should be excited for? I think the main thing with Zimmerman is that he's a center who can block shots and shoot threes, or at least he projects to be able to do that down the road. And that's really the two skills I want most in the modern five. He's also mobile enough to play in the perimeter. Like, I wouldn't say he can, like, trap 20 feet from the basket, like Shake Yellow or anything, but he can move his feet. It's not like Kevin Love out there. Right. So if you've got a seven-footer who can play in the perimeter on both sides of the ball, that's really, I think, the ingredient you need. And if you look at Zimmerman's profile, people are saying, oh, he needs to gain weight, he's too soft, et cetera, et cetera. And that might be true, but I can say the same thing about Scal times like 25. And yet Scal's a lottery pick, and they really both had about equal freshman seasons. And at least in Zimmerman's case, he had some mitigating circumstances. He's playing for a coach who got fired, a team that fell apart, and he got injured. Whereas Scal's playing for a top team in the country with a bunch of NBA players. And he's, he's played just as bad, if not worse. It really does seem like kind of an, an optics thing where, you know, Scal is obviously getting, Scal Labissier is obviously getting all of this, you know, positive attention just because of the, the kind of machine that uh, UK generally operates under. Whereas obviously Zimmerman, you know, he's in a very dysfunctional environment. An interesting thing about that is they're both very, very underdeveloped big men in terms of both their productivity and their weight. The concerns over his his body type is not necessarily founded, in my opinion. I think he has a frame that can definitely put on weight. Kind of looks like Tiago Splitter to me. Is there anything on the defensive end specifically that you, you really, really think projects well in the NBA for him? Well, just his physical tools. Like, when I'm looking at these seven-footers, especially these younger ones, I feel like it's almost like looking at left tackles coming out of, like, high school. It's more about their feet, their hands, and their quickness than about their production. Because you think they'll be coached up in the NBA anyways. Right. I just think Nerman's pretty mobile. He has pretty good shot-blocking instincts. So I think, I think it's really sort of high basketball IQ. Like, whoever drafts him, the fans, they're going to be shocked at how, like, skilled he is and how tough he went in the draft. Yeah, that... And, like, lesson learned, boys and girls, don't go sign with your hometown team if the coach is a bad coach. It's going <laughs> to cost you a lot of money in the draft. Yeah, that's something I definitely noticed at the Adidas Nations. He was a guy who was leading his team. He was a guy who was creating offense from the top of the circle. 
Um, he, he had very good vision. He had perimeter skills and a guy who was very comfortable playing in the post with his left hand, especially. Um, I mean, I also like, I went back and I watched that hoop summit from 2015 and he kind of gave Scal a business a few times. He faced him up from 20 feet and went right around him. I mean, to me, he's just a better basketball player. And I stand by that. So we'll see. Right. And now we go from Kentucky's big man to Kentucky's small man. So there, there are two small guys that we kind of are interested in in this draft. Uh, let's talk about Tyler Eulis and Kay Felder, who are both 5'9", pretty intriguing point guards in this draft. Um, the thing is, one was a projected first rounder, or is a projected first rounder, and the other one isn't. Uh, one was a top 20 recruit, and the other one went unranked. Between these two, who do you like better? Well, I guess Kentucky fans are going to be mad at me because I'm selling on all the Kentucky players this year just about. That team was not very nice. We all saw it. But you specifically, he reminds me of Shane Larkin, who I watched a lot with the Mavericks last when he was drafted by the Mavs a few years ago. And you was like got a very high basketball IQ, but he's really small. And I, I, I'm up with Larkin, I noticed small point guards, A, they have to be thick physically to handle like the beating we get in the post. I mean, Eulis was 155 pounds. They have to be great shooters, and Eulis only shot from the three this year. Let's see what the numbers. He shot 34% from three, and a lot of teams were underscreened Eulis. They kind of gave him that shot. They weren't really super worried about his outside shooting. He's not a great scorer. He's a distributor. He's a floor general, which is great, but he's freaking tiny. And also, tiny guards should be staying in school a long time because they've got no margin for error. So, like, I just look at Ulyss, and he reminds me a lot of Shane Larkin, who, by the way, was a much better college player. Shane Larkin was a monster in Miami. He was the ACC player of the year as a sophomore. He took them to the Sweet 16, and he had, like, basketball cue out the wazoo, elite athlete. I would say he's much faster than Ulyss is. Right. And, and so to me, Felder, he's 5'9", 180. He's really thick. He's just as good a passer, just as good a shooter, probably a better athlete. And the thing about it's like, oh, he played at Oakland as opposed to Kentucky. But if you look at his three games where he played against Washington on the road, he played Michigan State and Auburn Hills, and he played UVA on the road. And that's going up against NBA players. That's John T. Murray at Washington. That's Denzel at Michigan State. That's Malcolm Brogdon at UVA. Against Washington, he put up 38, 6 and 9, 30 points, 6 rebounds, 9 assists. Michigan State. 37 points, 9 assists, 3 rebounds. UVA, in Charlottesville, 30 points, 3 assists. I mean, that's, this guy can play basketball, man. And the other thing, too, is I was reading an article about uh, McCollum, and he was talking about like playing at the smaller school where he's the focus of the attention all the time on defense. Him and Dane were the same way. And so, yeah, they're not the same level of athletes, these smaller conferences, but every coach in those conferences knows about these players. And these coaches, too, like, at these big major, high major schools, a lot of these guys can't coach at all. Like, like LSU's guy, Johnny Jones, he really can't coach. So he's there to get players. But when you're playing at Youngstown State and you're playing at, like, Green Bay and at Milwaukee and Valparaiso, all these coaches are basketball lifers. They're going to explain you to death. They're going to get the ball in your hands. They're going to throw junk defense at you constantly. So Felder's used to that. He still puts up huge statistics. Whereas you was playing the SEC with Coach Cal. He's got a bunch of NBA guys around him, putting them average stats. So to me, I would take him over Ulysses pretty easily. And I thought the only reason they really looked at differently is because one guy 
was caught by the services in Chicago, went to Kentucky, and one guy stood the cracks, went up at Oakland. Right. And I, I think one of the things that separates them is, despite them both being 5'9", they're built very, very differently. Felder is mm-hmm. this, you know, solid brick of quick twitch muscles, kind of in the vein of, you know, Isaiah Thomas or Nate Robinson, whereas Ulysses, uh, he weighed in at 149 at the NBA Combine, which I think would make him the third lightest player to ever play in the NBA, or at least in the in the last 30 years, behind Earl Boykins and Muggsy Bogues. And the thing with that is... Yeah, I would say like... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the thing with that is both of those guys were at least four inches shorter than him. With with Ulysses, you're looking at a, at a guy who is pretty much all arms and legs, despite being only 5'9". So the, the kind of the weight distribution worries me uh, when it comes to him having to, you know, drive into the lane in the NBA. I actually like Ulysses a lot. Uh, part of me kind of roots for him because I feel like if he was 6'3", uh, I would consider him one of my favorite point guard prospects in recent years, but he's not. And so there, the the concerns there are absolutely warranted. Uh, as for Felder, look, this guy hits his crossovers and step backs with, you know, more conviction than anything I've ever done in my life. Uh, he's he's incredible. Like his, I I really really enjoy his athletic in- instincts and. Uh, you know, Allen Iverson tweeted about him once saying that, you know, Felder was a problem in a good way. So, you know, he has AI's vote of confidence. I look, sign me up. Yeah, I would say like in one word, Felder is swole. In one word, Ulysses is scrawny. And if I'm looking at a supersized suit, like an undersized point guard, give me the swole guy every single time. Like I just watched him play Washington for his podcast. And he was just jaying up Murray. Murray's six five with long arms. And Felder's going to shot off. He's so quick. He's a great shoot, off the shooter. Right. I'll take him over here, for sure. And speaking of great scorers, our next guy, Malik Beasley, who was, uh, he was the number 36 recruit out of the class of 2015. What are your thoughts on him? I've, I've liked his game. I feel like he got under the radar because he was kind of in Dwayne Bacon at Florida State. And Bacon's kind of bigger, a little faster. He got most of the initial hype out of FSU on a pretty bad FSU team. But I thought Beasley was a better basketball player. He's got a very complete, well-rounded game. He shoots threes. He gets to the rim. He's got a mid-range game. He's kind of raw on defense, but he's got some tools. He's athletic. I think he's got a very well-rounded game for a freshman. He's a pretty good athlete. He plays for a coach who stresses defense. So he's learned. Leonard Hamilton was an NBA coach for a while. He's learned NBA defense from Hamilton. I think he's got a chance to be a real steal. I'm a little surprised he declared for the draft, honestly. Like, why you would declare for the draft as a freshman on a bad team, like a second option, it's not going to do well for your draft stock generally. And so, not surprisingly, he's fallen out of the first round talk. But really, in terms of athletic potential, I think he's as much as most of these two guards in this year's draft. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of Malik Beasley. I, I think he's just an incredibly efficient scorer who's capable of shooting threes. Um, off-ball movement, you know, or dribble step-backs. I, I think he's pretty versatile in that regard. Uh, I, I don't really trust him off the dribble yet, but, you know, how he attacks, you know, straight-line drives on closeouts looked pretty good to me. Um, I, I really enjoyed how how hard he fought on defense. Like, I, I don't think he's quite there yet, but I think he's shown the desire to defend, and that's 
you know, kind of half the battle. Um, you you give that. Well, you know, sort of state, you got to stand the planet floor. Yeah, Learn exactly. Learn just pull you if not playing defense. Right. And, you know, g- given time to set up, um, I, he had really explosive leaping ability. You, you know, you look at a guy like Contavious Caldwell Pope, who plays for the Pistons. He's shown the ability to guard, you know, three positions. And, and you wonder if Beasley might be able to do the same. He doesn't quite have that that length, but I think his quickness yeah. and his tenacity to close the gaps definitely helps him in that regard. I mean, I think he's definitely an interesting long-term guy. I would assume him in Beasley next year, I would draft him. But he's definitely got to watch going forward. And someone much higher on the 2015 recruiting list was Jake Diallo, who was the number seven recruit out of 2015. He didn't see a lot of time at Kansas. What should we know about him? Yeah, I mean, he's the latest of a long line of guys that, you know, Bill Self buried him on the end of the bench, you know, so he could play Landon Lucas. It's hard to say with Shake, like, he was well thought of coming out of school, got a lot of physical tools. I watched him twice at Ben and TCU. He moves really, really well for a guy his size. He's got really long arms. And he's even shown a little bit of a, I saw some flashes of skill out of this game. Like, he's not just a rim runner kind of guy. He can face up. He has a little, like, 15-foot jumper he busts out occasionally. And I think he's purely a physical projection guy. He's all tools. He just never played at Kansas. There's another guy. I'm just glad I declared for draft to begin with. Like, who's advising these players to declare for the draft when they play, like, eight minutes a game? It's really kind of like, there's so much of this purely, like, your narrative context about your season. If you're on a bad team, you're not playing much. Or even a good team, you're not playing much. You'll go very high in this draft, even if you have really good tools. Right. Which I guess is good for NBA team. But I think what the Olive thing is, he's 6'9", some full wingspan, and he can guard the pick and roll, he can switch screens. That's really his selling point if you're looking to draft him. I don't necessarily think we should fault him for trying to get into the NBA as soon as he can, because, I mean, he's had to go through a lot of headaches with the NCAA, and I'm, I'm sure he's trying to get out of that more than he is, you know. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah. Wasn't he, he suspended for, like, the NCAA tournament or something like that? Remember that correctly? Um, yeah, he, he was just benched. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I really like him as, as you said, a guy who has a bunch of physical tools the the fact that he has a, a wingspan over seven four is remarkable. He seems to me to be a, a guy similar to an Amir Johnson type. You know, I, I don't think he's going to have the most refined offensive game at the next level, but you really like that kind of defensive versatility. Obviously, be a guy who can defend the pick and roll in a number of ways. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's really a selling point. He's such a he's not very thick. So it's like, there's a big, with like all these fives in this year's draft, there are your fives who can guard the post, and your fives who can pick and roll, and not many of them can do both. And Diallo's definitely like a pick and roll defender. Right. Like, could he guard Amaris Cousins? Probably not. I don't see how he could his size. So we've talked a lot about freshmen, but this year has obviously been kind of a senior resurgence in college basketball. It's reflected in this year's draft class. You know, historically, another way prospects have gotten overlooked is simply by being a senior, but I think that could be different this year. The, the first guy on our list isn't necessarily under the radar, but considering his skill set, he definitely is you know overlooked as a potential mid to late lottery guy, and that's Denzel Valentine. What do you what do you like about Valentine? You see, damn, at twenty three now on Draft Express. I'm not sure what's going on with his workouts, but that's pretty. I was pretty shocked to see that. 
I mean, he he's definitely not going to be a guy who's going to be like a, a physical marvel, but I, I'm I'm surprised that he isn't wowing people with his shooting ability or just general floor sense. I mean, I'll play this game again. Like to me, I think he's a better basketball player than Buddy Heald. I feel like they're both elite shooters, but Denzel can put on the floor. He can run point. He gets rebounds. He's a very versatile player. Whereas Buddy just kind of shoots threes constantly, which is great. But like I think Buddy's seen as higher like rated because he's a better athlete. But Buddy played no defense in college, really. It was most guys they had cousins guarding guys in the whole youth team. And like Denzel, even though he's not a great athlete, he learned how to play even with Tom Izzo. And I feel like he's just a much he's a, I mean like the difference between him and Buddy is shooting is not very high. He's a forty percent three point shooter on a high volume, off the dribble a lot of them too. He's an elite, elite shooter. And he can run point. And he kills the rebounds. Like, he's a very, very versatile player. And to me, I'll, I'll gamble on him being an adequate defender more than I'll gamble on Buddy the first time game. Right. And I, I've talked to you about this before, Charts, but my dream for Denzel Valentine would be for him to get drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks uh, so that, you know, Jason Kidd can completely double down on his vision of positionless basketball. He obviously fits their their kind of mold for guys. He's six five. He's long arms. You know, he's a he's he's a guy who can you could you could slot him as a secondary ball handler. And as you said, I mean, he's a great three point shooter. You know, any team could use him on on their roster. Yeah, for sure. I saw someone telling me like John Hammonds, the GM, never draft seniors over there. I don't know if it's even true, but it sounded true to me. So I'll just repeat it. But like, <laughs> he'd be great for the Milwaukee. He'd be great for anyway. Similar like Denzel. He's such a versatile offensive player. You can slide him into any role and he'll be good. Whereas Buddy's got to be a guy coming off screens, taking a bunch of threes, which is fine. But if one, like the thing about that is, neither guy is probably going to be an elite defender. So it's all about how is their offense going to get them on the floor. And Denzel can just do a lot more things on offense than Buddy can. Right. That'll open up a lot more roles for him on potential teams. That's the key with Denzel. Yeah, and and if you slot him in the Bucks. You know, you can hide him amongst, you know, the branches that they have on D. You know, everyone there has a wingspan of at least 6'10". Isn't Denzel's wingspan pretty high too, right? Yeah, like I, I, think he, I think he has a 6'10 wingspan as well. For being a guy who's only 6'5". That's, that's huge. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think my favorite Denzel Valentine tidbit is that Peja Stojakovic is his favorite player, which completely endears. Nice. Yeah, he, that's, it's incredible. I, I wish I knew more about that, but... Game recognized game, man. That's all that is. Yeah. You know, I like Denzel a lot, actually. I'm just looking at the Mount draft. To me, put him in Utah at 12. Because Utah's got a bunch of length on defense. They need a ball mover. They need a shooter. They need more half-court execution on offense. He could be a 7th, 8th man in the Utah Jazz. He can spot up off the ball. He can get guys shots. I mean, that to me is a spot for Denzel Valentine's Utah Jazz. Right. And another guy who's been overlooked despite... Possibly having lottery talent is Karis Levert out of Michigan. Now, you know, this isn't obviously entirely tied to his senior status, but uh, the fact that he's suffered numerous foot injuries kind of does cast a lot of doubt uh, in picking him as a first-round talent. Uh, what do you like from Karis Levert? I mean, I love Levert's game, but yeah, that's one of those things that's kind of like hard for us to say from the outside. Right? I think he's broken both feet the last two years. So it's obviously tough to give a guy a, a big guaranteed contract in that situation. But in terms of his game, I mean, he's got super long arms. He's a very, very versatile player. 
your six seven combo forward. She's just a very versatile player. He can shoot threes, he runs points, he gets rebounds. He can guard three or four positions and switch pick and rolls. He's pretty athletic too. Like to me, he's like the perfect modern NBA player. The guy I think I comp him to, not quite exactly the same game, is Chris Middleton on the Bucks. Middleton fell that year in the draft because he was coming off knee surgery. So Levert, if Levert is healthy, he's got as much game as any swings in this draft period. It just is he going to be healthy or not? I, mean, I don't know. Right. And one thing that Chris Middleton kind of had uh, was knocked on uh, entering the draft was he. It wasn't clear if he was going to be a great or a good three-point shooter. That's something that he's definitely improved upon uh, since entering the league. And I, I actually think the Chris Middleton comparison is pretty apt. One of the things that impressed me a lot in uh, Middleton's development was the fact that he'd kind of become a pretty decent ball handler in the pick and roll. I think Levert is much more of a natural pick and roll ball handler. He has great vision, and he's already proven that he's a pretty good shooter. Um, and at six seven, you know that's a huge advantage for whoever drafts him. I mean, I'll tell you this: like in terms of being a basketball player, he's way better than Hot Sauce Castillo Nikstauskas out of Michigan a couple of years ago. And he went in the lottery, and I would take number over Stauskas ten out of ten times. Right. Whatever that's worth. And so our next guy might not be on a lot of people's radars at all, um, just because of how buried he was on a team with more notable players. To set this up, he played for Maryland. Uh, he's not Mellow Trimble, who elected to return. He's not Diamond Stone. He's not Jake Lehman. So who is this guy? Robert Carr Jr. Um, he, was, he was a transport attack. He was Maryland's power forward. And yeah, I've, I've loved his game since playing at Georgia Tech. And to me, like, within the second round, one of the best places to find steals is role players with physical tools on good teams. That was like the basic template for Josh Richardson template for Norman Powell. It's like they weren't really put in a position to run the offense a lot. So it was like, oh, they're college role players. How could they be in the NBA, really? Like, we're not drafting a guy too high if he's not scoring enough points per game. And to me, Carter's the same way. So Carter's team, as you were kind of talking about, like, it was pretty much a worst-case scenario for him to succeed or to show what he can do. Because he's playing with Diamond Stone, a low post five, demands the ball, Never freaking passes. I think started like 10 assists this year, like the entire season. He's a big, slow, traditional five, wants the ball inside. At the three spot, you got Jake Lehman. He's really a stretch four playing out of position at three positions. So the floor is kind of already crowded. There's not a lot of space. Even though he's a shooter, there's not a lot of true perimeter players around Carter. At the two and the one, you got Suleiman, Rashid Suleiman, Melo Trimble, both fringe NBA prospects, both trying to get bucks, both holding the ball a lot. Neither one of them is really a quote-unquote role player. They're both trying to get their stats. And that was kind of Maryland's problem all season. You had Trimble, Suleiman, Lehman, Carter, Stone. They're all fringe NBA prospects. They all want to get a bunch of numbers. The team didn't really fit well together. And they were kind of like, they were less than some of their parts. And to me, of those five parts, Carter had by far the most physical tools. This guy's 6'9", 245, 7'3", wingspan. So basically, he's a five in the modern NBA. He's thick, he's got long arms, he's pretty quick. And he's got handles, he can shoot, he can pass. People have comped him to, like, Paul Millsap. And I wouldn't say he's Paul Millsap, he's not an elite rebounder. He hasn't got an elite kind of, like, 
basketball IQ or elite, like uh, hustle ability or whatever. But he's a very, very versatile big man with a lot of different stuff in his game. Like, he could probably be Maurice Bates at a minimum. And he's way more skilled than Maurice Bates. He can put a ball on the floor. He can pass the ball, too. Like, to me, Carter, I was telling plenty of Danny, like, I think he's a top 15, top 20 talent in this year's draft. And he was just stuck on a really poorly constructed team. And he couldn't show what he could do. Yeah, to put this in perspective, Draft Express currently has him in the 40s. And yeah, I think you just heard Chark say he would put him in the top 15, top 20. And I, I kind of can see where the Paul Millsap comparisons are coming from. Uh, they have very similar measurables. They both wear red. They both wear the number four. Um, another guy who I, I kind of compared him to was early James Johnson. Similarly, they both kind of had a lot of conditioning worries. Mm-hmm. He might not be a guy who can play heavy minutes right away. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, he's second on pick. Obviously, he's not going to play heavy minutes on a good team. <laughs> I mean, like, James Johnson, he's a better shooter than James Johnson was, I think. I forget if Johnson's a good shooter in college, but he shot 33% from three, 74% from the line. So it's not great. But he also got, like, 1.3 blocks a game and a .88 steals. So, like, he's got the physical tools to be a small ball five, and he can off, he can play ball, he can play ball, he can shoot and dribble and pass. Right. Like, to me, he's just, like, I don't even really care, honestly, about a guy's stats or about a guy's, like, college production. I'm a tools guy all the way. I'm, like, I'm looking for a guy's tools. I'm looking at his team. And I'm getting the most out of his tools. And if they are, I'm like, this guy could be a freaking steal. Because he's not being shown what he can do. Like, that's, that's to me, the main thing I'm looking for. Especially with big men. I like big men particularly. If their guards don't shoot very much or hold the ball too much, it's hard to see who they can be on the college level. And we're going to end on someone you have very, very, very strong opinions on. Tell me about A.J. Hammonds out of Purdue. Well, that's my boy. A.J. Hammonds is a straight-up monster. I mean, he's just, he's a great basketball, I mean, he's a really good basketball player. The stuff with Hammonds, a lot of it is off the court. I've heard things said about Hammonds, like, oh, that's why he's falling in the draft. But let's just say, focus on the basketball stuff for now, and let me not cast aspersions without any sourcing, or without proper sourcing. Anyways, in terms of him as a basketball player, he's seven foot two sixty, two seventy, seven three wingspan. He's a great shot blocker. Let me give you his numbers. He blocks two point five blocks a game, but he gets four blocks for forty minutes. He's an elite rim protector. He's very smart. I mean, he can move his feet a little bit. He pretty much shuts down the paint. I watched him play uh, Damian Jones from Vanderbilt in the non conference. You know, he just whooped them. And to me, like. When I want to watch big men play other NBA big men. That says the whole tale. Because most of the season, they're going to play guys who just can't play at all. They're getting double teamed. And no, you can't really see what they can do. But when you're going one-on-one with an NBA big man, you can really kind of show out. And Hammond's got NBA size, got NBA speed. He can, he can shoot 20-footers. He's a very developed post game. And he can even pass the ball out of a double team. Like, whoever drafts him, they're going to be flat-out shocked at how good he is. Come out right away. He's also 24, which is a problem, but I think for NBA, for big men, it's not as much a deal. You've got Gorgie Jang and Mason Plumley. They're both really old rookies. And it's like, if you're a center, if you have size and speed and skills, it don't matter what level you can play at because few guys you're going to play have the same kind of ability. Like, A.J. Hammond is bigger than most NBA centers. He's just as fast and he's more skilled. He'll be a good player right away, I think, coming out of college. 
And I, I like Hammonds a lot too. I, I think he has a great touch around the basket. I think he has great touch out to, you know, 20 feet. My one issue with him, other than, you know, the off the court issues that may or may not, you know, be the problem here is that history doesn't really favor guys like Hammonds. You know, there isn't a great track record for uh, four-year centers entering the draft. Uh, usually, you know, the talent is so undeniable that they declare within the first two years or the red flags are just a bit too pressing. I, I've looked back at this since 2000. Uh, the best centers might be Channing Fry or Mason Plumley, And they're two, you know, solid players, but... You know, you're going back 16 years and you're not necessarily getting a guy who's going to be, you know, a strong selection uh, wherever the person's getting drafted. I mean, I guess that's fair. I would say mitigating circumstances. You look at Purdue, where he's sharing the floor with another center. Uh, Haas is pretty good. So it's like he's never had great per-game stats. And it's kind of crazy in our advanced stats age. The only stats people actually care about are points per game and wins and losses. So if you put a bunch of points on a good team, everybody loves you. If you don't, all kinds of things come out. Because it's like, you can always poke holes in a prospect. It goes back to like our scouts that are in comparison. So if you're playing on a good team and you've got decent stats, you score in the ball, and oh, like it's great. But even though you get the same flaws and you're playing on a bad team, you're not scoring as lot those same flaws will be exposed a lot more. We talked about a lot more. And I think with Hammonds, he was just never really, like, he just kind of stayed in school. Maybe he stayed in school too long. But for me, I'll go with the tools, and I'll worry about the history later. So we've talked about A.J. Hammonds before, and the last time we talked about him, you promised that you would eat your hat if he wasn't going to be a good NBA player. Are, are you sticking with that? Yeah, I guess. It's a good expression. I mean, no, I'm not going to eat my hat, but I'll stay by the expression. <laughs> I'm not uh, eating my hat for you, but it's unhealthy, dude. All right, man. I, 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 I took it literally, but you know what? Let's all ride for He's AJ Hammonds because we don't want Sharks to be eating his hat anyway. Absolutely. It's bad for you, man. Anyway, I, I think that's all we have for our show. Uh, we'll be wrapping up our draft coverage quite soon on The Ringer, so visit theringer.com for more of our stuff. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sharks. Yeah, thanks guys.